0: one thing that's most important in pinball when you think about the one thing that's the genesis of creating a pinball machine that's magical that's special that's meaningful that will move you in some way if I had to pick one word I think the most important thing in this industry the thing that this industry needs the most it's passion Passion is something that you can't just create out of thin air. Passion is something that doesn't come just because you throw money at a pinball project. Passion doesn't develop because you want to take down every single pinball company in pinball. That's not where passion comes from. Passion comes from the heart. It comes from the soul. And I'm so happy that I got a chance to talk to someone about their passion in pinball. Someone who wanted to make a pinball machine around Sonic the Hedgehog. And one did not exist. So what did this man do? He went and he just created it. He built it. And in less than a year, he was able to go from a dream to a Sonic the Hedgehog pinball machine that is super freaking awesome. And when I look at this pinball industry and you look at the games, you look at the designers that have built things because they were so passionate about the theme. That's what leads to games like The Big Lebowski. That's what leads to games like Guns N' Roses with Jersey Jack. You don't think Slash and Eric have passion for that project? That's what led to Keith Elwin breaking into pinball. That's what led to Scott Denisi breaking into pinball. And the other thing that's just amazing about Ryan McQuaid who made this Sonic pinball machine is this. He didn't have millions of dollars. He didn't have years and years and years to tinker with a thing. He didn't have a contract. He didn't have a pedigree. He wasn't resting on his laurels because he made games in the 90s that were good and now he's taking years to make one decent game in the future. No, he simply built this game in his garage. And I'm telling you right now, How is it that a man can build a game in a garage that's got more fun stuff in it versus other designers who have taken so many years and so many millions of dollars and they still can't deliver stuff as cool as Sonic Pinball, okay? So I'm really happy for you to hear this interview with Ryan McQuaid and his Sonic machine and I want every single manufacturer out there to listen to me right now. This is where the future of pinball lies with talented men and women who are passionate about pinball and that's where the next great designers will come from it's not going to come from these people that keep rehashing recycled ideas over and over and over again do i have to cough cough led zeppelin it's okay it's okay i don't think anyone's looking at led zeppelin saying wow how did they do that they must have been so passionate about led zeppelin to create that pin no it's not the same And we need more games that are driven by passion and not just profit. We need dreamers and not accountants telling these designers what the bomb is. And I get it, we'll figure out how to make these games profitable. The games that are built with the most passion will bring the most profit, I firmly believe that. So let's air this interview with Ryan, and I do think the homebrew market, if you were to ask me, the homebrew market is where the most exciting pinball design is happening in the world. It is. And most of the companies that we know about, a lot of them are just recycling ideas. The real innovation, the real dreamers, it's taking place in people's garages and in their basements that's where the future of pinball lies everybody happy holidays and i'm probably going to talk to you before christmas but if i don't happy holidays and we'll talk to you soon ladies and gentlemen i want to welcome to the show we've never had someone out there who has a dream theme doesn't take no for an answer and goes off on a mission to make their dream theme a pinball game Ryan McQuaid who is making Sonic Spinball Pinball. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey there. Now Ryan, you're some kind of crazy if you want to make your own homebrew pinball machine. What led you to create Sonic Pinball?
1: I kind of always knew that I I wanted it to exist. I was always mad that it didn't exist. I actually used to sit there on Facebook and um, tag Sega Amusements and Stern at the same time, and be like, "All right, now kiss." I only recently seriously considered starting to build it myself when I attended a, a conference at the fantastic Pinball Show um, done by Mark Seaton, a good friend of mine who worked on um, his excellent Metroid pinball game, um, and I just saw I saw all the awesome things he was doing, and that like he had a bunch of incredible original ideas, and he was just building it, and nobody could tell him no, and he just came so far, and it was really awesome, and then he showed up to one of my parties with a piece of plywood and said, here you go, get building, because as soon as we find out someone else is on the edge, we tend to push them over.
0: Now, he hands you plywood. What What's your background that he would actually even think you'd be capable of this?
1: So— I'm going to steal a line from um, Adam Savage. I I consider myself to be more of a generalist. I have a lot of dabbling in a lot of different areas of making, and um, I'm not really an expert in any of them. I do 3D printing. I've done electronics hobbies my whole life. I've done a little bit of woodworking, but nothing too serious. But I found this excellent community of people that are, are willing to help you fill in all of your gaps in any of specific skill you have I feel like I gained the confidence to to give it a shot after doing that
0: and where does one start you get a piece of wood you're looking at it and you want to make sonic what's the next step all right
1: so actually in my journey the piece of wood was like step 36 I started actually about a year before I started anything to do with Sonic. I I grabbed the Visual Pinball 10 program that is a it's a free open source pinball simulator that's been around since the 90s. And I said, you know what, I'm gonna teach myself to make to use this thing. I'm gonna teach myself to make pinball on this platform. And so I made this little street level, simple style, like what I would have done if I were a designer in the 80s and like ramps weren't even popular yet, just to keep it simple and like teach myself how to use the tools. And so I ended up obsessing over it for an entire weekend. And by the time I was done, I was like, this is actually kind of good. So I decided to learn how to code the rules and like do a little bit of ms paint art for it Um, and i ended up releasing it on the uh, visual pinball forums just because i was like this is kind of fun it might not be a waste of somebody's time to play this for 20 minutes but the entire goal of that project was to teach myself to use the tools so that maybe further on down the line i could use that software to design sonic and like then have a plan because i can't really i'm not one of the guys that can just grab a piece of wood and start cutting there's right. a lot of them out there, though.
0: That seems inefficient to do it that way, right?
1: I thought so, but it works a lot. It works for them. Some some people. Uh, I keep saying guys, but like there are a lot of women doing this too. Um, some wait. Are are there really a lot of women making maybe, maybe not a lot of them, but there are at least a few. Okay. Um, and and there should be more. So I don't want to discourage anybody. Absolutely especially in pinball where gender means nothing. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people are very hands-on and like maybe they've been doing woodworking and they have a shop, so like their first instinct is all right, I'm going to grab a piece of wood, start cutting and see what happens. And like they get a bunch of parts and just start bolting things on and It sort of works or it doesn't. I have always been a very plan first or measure three times, cut once kind of guy. So I figured if I could play with it enough in a simulator that'll either even be like 75% accurate, then I can be relatively sure that what I've come up with is worth building because I didn't want to have a design think, oh, yeah, that'll be cool. Spend hundreds of hours building it and then go, oh, actually, this isn't fun at all. Right. You and I both know there's tons of beautiful games out there that as soon as you like you're so excited to get to play them and then as soon as you touch the flipper buttons you're like this is not nearly as good as
0: it looks. Right. I got a question about that. So are you able to determine how fun a game is to shoot digitally because it it feels like something that you'd want to feel. You absolutely do want to feel it but you can get a start. You can definitely get a preview like it's
1: better than just a flip of a coin like if you you'll end up playing digitally. And you'll either be like, this is dumb or boring, or sometimes you're like, actually, this is I'm enjoying myself. So like, like I said in my, my video, when I finished my digital prototype, I, I was just, you know, I was just making it make a change, play it for a second, make a change, play it for a second. And then that last change without noticing it, I played it for like three hours, just right. flipping it around like, "Ooh, watch the ball go. Hey, this feels good. Um, and it didn't even have any rules. So I, I feel like once you have an idea that is fun without any rules
0: like okay now there's a
1: better chance of me liking this in real life
0: right because ultimately every pinball machine can be reduced down to the shots
1: yeah absolutely i mean rules can make or break a game like you can have a either boring or not even good layout with excellent rules and you can have a great game likewise you can
0: have an incredible layout with bad rules and ruin the game but it is a tug-of-war it is a tug-of-war right and i've seen games like tales of the arabian nights which shoots so beautifully well and why do people sell it right because they run out of code quickly in it and then you've got games like walking dead which might be a a clunker but the rules are so amazing it keeps people engaged yeah honestly i never found walking dead
1: to be particularly clunky but i can totally see where other people would Um, My biggest problem with that game
0: is I don't like any game that makes you plunge into pop bumpers, but That's not that's not the point so getting back to Sonic So you played it for three hours you were enjoying it and at what moment did you say okay computer off? I'm ready to start building this thing physically
1: so actually it was last Christmas I am typically a person who has a lot of difficulty filling out a Christmas list Mm -hmm. because I just I, I Have the tools I need and I don't need a lot of stuff like so people are always like, put something on your Christmas list. I'm like, I don't, I don't want anything. I don't need anything. Like, I don't know, socks. I'm like, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm boring to shop for. Right. Um, so. It just happened to be around October, November when I finally completed the digital prototype. And I was like, you know what? The average like pinball mechanism in the homebrew section on pinball life is like 20 to 80 bucks. So like I'll just put all of these things on it individually, like kind of build material out my stuff onto a Christmas list. First of all, I will have no excuse to put it off because it won't even be my money if I get the stuff for Christmas. And... Secondly, once I have all that stuff, I can't not build it.
0: Was your family like Ryan's got on his wish list a, a three bank drop target, and you're like, they're like, what is going on in his family? <laughs> that is exactly
1: what happened. And I didn't get a single pinball mechanism for Christmas. I got gift cards. Yeah, which worked just fine. I spent them day on Christmas morning. Six hundred dollar order went into Pinball Life, um, and another couple hundred into Marco. Then it all showed up, and
0: I was in. <laughs> and you, you bring up a good point, because with people going on the homebrew journey, there's so many mechanisms that have already been engineered, right? So it's not out of the realm of possibility to make a game with a lot of mechs and toys that have just already been developed.
1: Yeah, There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There's um there's actually a lot that I keep seeing people do new things with old, old pieces. There's infinite ways you can put these puzzle pieces together. And as long as you have the mindfulness to, like, test what you're doing, you, you can't really screw it up. For example, in my old solid state game, I put a drop target in the out lane and like, I've never seen that done before, but it worked for me. And like, it's still all parts everybody's used before. It's just a single drop target. It's a one-way gate and it's an outlane. Like people have done things like it, but never just like that. And I was like, will this work? You can do all kinds of stuff that no one's ever done
0: before. I agree. I'm still shocked there's not more creativity like that. And then when I look at the shooting star outlanes and Toten, you know, Denise using drop targets as ball locks, there's just seems to be more ability to use some of these parts in unique ways that sort of reimagines them all over again. Do you think we should see more of that in modern
1: pinball? Well, I'm that that's one of my main goals is I mean I, yeah, for Sonic I have a few like custom mechanisms which you can again, you can make a game with entirely off the shelf parts, but like if you if you want something specific, you can always make it yourself
0: or have someone make it for you. So what are the custom parts in Sonic that you fabricated?
1: So the the custom parts I fabricated for Sonic would be, you know, obviously the, they're, they're still normal parts, but like you need to make your own ramps. Most likely no ramp from an existing game is going to fit your game perfectly. So you need to be able to like make the wire returns, make the ramps. Um, I use a 3D printer for that. And then we have obviously the loop, which everybody's familiar with. If you're familiar with Sonic at all. And then most recently, the spinning signpost I made
0: myself. I love all three of these. I want to talk about each one of them. So the ramp, these 3D printed ramps are really cool. It looks a lot like the fat ramp in Avengers. Did yours come before that? Yes. Uh, Well, mine, let, let me let me back up a little bit.
1: Mine came before the Avengers one was revealed. OK, um, I actually I actually like got a little I, I got a little bit hmm, when um, when the Avengers one was dropped and we had both that pseudo loop and a fat ramp in the same game. I was like, hmm, maybe somebody should put me in the credits for this game. But no, I actually talked to um, Elwin and uh, he, he does his games a year in advance, like they're designed a year before they even start working on him. So he designed that thing ages ago. And uh, while we were talking about the fat ramp. Um, Another gentleman, I can't remember his name off the top of my head right now, Um, popped into the thread and was like, yeah, we built one of those 20 years ago. We called it the pregnant ramp. Right. And then it just devolved into a conversation of what we all called our fat ramps in development. Mine was the thick ramp. Being thicker like that, does it help the ball maintain velocity as it's going around? So the fat ramp does a few things in my game. Number one, yes. Um, if you're hitting it from the upper flipper, the curve of the left wall is like almost it's, it's almost just like a sideways loop and it keeps the ball going really fast and it never slows down. And it's really delightful. But the fat portion of it is also the ramp can actually be hit by any flipper on the game. Like even it could even be backhanded. It doesn't look like it could be backhanded, but it can. Um, and that's intentional. It's really hard from the left flipper. It's average from the right flipper and it's easier from the top right. That was the goal. I wanted you to be able to hit it from anywhere but the difficulty is different. Gotcha.
0: Now I'm watching this game and we're going to get to the other two elements because I think they're both awesome. But this game is all about speed and I'm watching this upper right flipper hit both in orbit up there and the ramp with such speed and velocity. And it makes sense because it's Sonic. Ryan, I had a Rick and Morty and the upper flipper shot was really tight and it was really hard to nail it. Do you believe that games should have wider openings to make them more fun and and fast and some of these games are getting way too difficult for people to enjoy that fun of seeing the ball loop around and around and around? I think it's a balance. Um, I actually did get a chance to play Rick and
1: Morty before um, the lockdown. I played it out. Bowen, Karens, and I took an hour-long trip out to a place in Colorado while we were out there for Nationals. Um, And I I really liked the game, and uh, we actually went back the next day, like, just drove another hour just to play it some more. I did like that shot a lot because it was really satisfying when you hit it because, you know, difficult shots are rewarding when you nail one, like, you know it's tight, and yet you somehow manage to get that ball to sail right through it without even touching a wall, and you feel good about yourself. However, I think a game can't have all difficult shots. So uh, take a game like Houdini. They were very ambitious with the game Houdini, and um, they ended up cramming a lot onto that playfield. But I think they actually went to do a little too much. Every shot on that game is really tight, every single one of them. So someone who either isn't familiar with pinball or is a pinball player but their strong suit isn't accuracy is not going to like that game as much because they're going to try and try and try and just hit posts and right. more posts and wa- and rattle so like those players need something to shoot too so you need to have a balance of some shots should be wide open and easy to hit and you know average reward and then you have a couple shots in the game that are harder and that will be rewarding you for shooting accurately i tried to do that a little bit with sonic So I wanted very deliberately. I wanted the the shots you were just talking about the repeating orbit and the ramp shot. I wanted those to be or at least the orbit. I wanted to be as easy as possible. I I am struggling. I am I am moving. I'm cutting my play field up. I'm spending entire weekends moving things just a quarter an inch just to try to get that shot to be more open and easy for two reasons. Number one, it's really important and I want new players and like less accurate players to be able to do it too. But also, I, I like the phenomenon of a good player being able to obliterate easy things. Right. So like, I want to see good players like like Bowen and Escher and everything. I want to see 10, 12, 15 combos from them. But I want the average person to be able to get a 2 or 3 as well. So that was the only problem I ever had with the, the inspirations for those shots, which is um, obviously... Uh, a lot of Steve Ritchie stuff. We have the the getaway and Black Knight 2000's upper loop were my favorites. They're both excellent looping shots, but they're just a little too hard for someone who's not like really accurate to get combos on. Like you end up with a four or five combo if you're good, but I I wanted to take that and make that easier so we can have higher scores and more accessibility. And then I always wished that the ramp on Black Knight 2000 was a chainable thing or like that was a combo. Like, I, I wanted to go around the, the loop three times and then nail the ramp for, like, a finishing combo kind of thing. And that just ended up working really well as soon as I did it on purpose.
0: It's so rewarding to have these upper loop shots. And when we watch these streams, I mean, Bowen's amazing. Elwin's amazing. And I think that's the trick is sometimes these guys who are so good, they're the ones giving the feedback or designing these games. And it's almost like they're designed for players of that caliber. But I always say, like, Make the game more approachable. Make it harder with the code. Because you could easily say, like, look, you have to hit 10 combos to like unlock this. That's still going to yep. be hard, right? But yep. if you make the shot too tight, then it gets frustrating for players. And especially if it's a pivotal shot in the game you need to make. Ryan, let's talk about the loop-de-loop, because when we were covering Hot Wheels, I was like, this game has to have a loop-de-loop. How can you make Hot Wheels without a loop-de-loop? And I even think we heard from the AP people being like, you can't do it in a game because it's, the you know, the space under the glass. And here you are proving them wrong. It looks super cool. Talk to us about the loop-de-loop.
1: So that timing was actually a really weird co- uh, coincidence. I had just released the video of my loop and like not a week later the um, the American Pinball guys released all of their play field shots and their streams and everything like that And so I had no idea that they were going to be catching flack for not having a loop. And then here I was in my basement doing it. Bad timing for them.
0: Great timing for (laughs) me.
1: Great timing for me. Um, But I I, I did listen to an interview from one of their designers, and uh, they did do a lot of R&D on the loop. They didn't just dismiss the idea as not being able to do it. One of their designers actually spent quite a bit of time trying to do it. And what they did was they decided that if you couldn't shoot it directly like a normal ramp like um, that avengers premium ramp then they didn't feel it was worth doing do you buy that do you buy that no not at all that's <laughs> why my play field has is the way it is i think that pinball originally and always has been about physics and about how amazing physics and science can be so a person seeing a ball go around a thing like that Like, sure, it feels good to shoot it as a player, but like, I'm picturing myself as a little five year old kid who's approached this game. And when I was a kid, I was always like amazed by like the ball, the big ball sculptures at the Museum of Science and just pinball machines and stuff and all the cool things that they could just make a ball do. And my least favorite games when I was a kid were the ones where the toy, the like, the thing that I could watch the ball do was hard to do. So if I want to, if I drop my quarter in, all I would want to do is see that sweet crane on like Demo Man or whatever do something. I just want to see it happen cuz it's awesome. So, I don't care if you can shoot it directly. If if your answer is if we can't shoot it directly, we shouldn't have it because that's just not true. It's worth doing. So, I mean I mean ev- nobody hates the catapult from medieval madness which was what like my ticket to getting this thing to work and you can't even really see the catapult arm i had to like really look at that mechanism to see oh my god it really is a catapult it's not just a kicker but like it's
0: still fun that's how i feel about the hyperdrive in star wars right it's like this cool thing you walk up to this game and you see this amazing like big structure going around the whole machine and you can't load it. It's too hard to get the ball in there for most people. The majority of people, especially a casual player, Ryan, will never see that ever work.
1: And that's not fair. It's, not fun. it's just not fair. I'm a, six, I, I'm a little kid and I'm amazed with the world. I'm amazed with physics. I'm amazed with science. And I can't just watch the thing happen. And that's right. all I want to do. I don't care what my score is. Right. Like, look what that cool ball is doing. So when I saw the Hyperloop, um, I actually owned a Star Wars Pro for a little while, uh, and I was really sad I didn't have the Hyperloop. But Hyperdrive, hyper cool. Hyperdrive, Hyperdrive, least... Hyperdrive, Hyperdrive, sorry, um, my, my mistake. Sorry. Right. Um, I was always a Star Trek guy. Don't don't kill me for that. But I thought it was amazing because I've always been a fan of uh, the getaway supercharger, too. A lot of people are like, oh, it's pointless. It just throws the ball around and you don't do anything. Yeah, but it's awesome. Just watch it. sweet sounds it goes around at a thousand miles an hour get three
0: balls into a supercharger on the getaway and tell me it's not amazing usually like the majority of pinball players want to see the ball do fun stuff i really do think it's the tournament players and the people who want skill to activate everything that have driven too much of this decision making in the pinball world i really do because then it's not skill based it's more about entertainment based and i always err on the side of These are toys like don't forget that people these are toys. literally called a toy exactly so okay so we got the cool loop de loop we've got the the cool ramp and then you added this really neat ramp spinner on the right side that spins between Dr. Robotnik and Sonic I love the way it spins it feels just like the way it looked inside the old 90s games talk to us about that spinner.
1: So that spinner was always in the plan. Like I always knew it was going to be there. I always knew what it was going to be. It's actually in the digital prototype just as a regular spinner because you can't make horizontal spinners in that game. Not without a lot of work that I didn't need to do. Uh, placeholders are your friend if you're designing, by the way. And I was having a conversation with uh, someone who was enthusiastic about the project. They were just talking about uh, the spinner, and it got me kind of energized to give it a shot. And I kind of just got everything to work on the first try. What really I'm excited about, and I I really wish the freaking shipping companies would get me my Marco parts so I could finish thing this thing off. Um, this is going to be what I think is my first, like, truly I'm the first one who ever did this. Because a lot of people think my loop-de-loop is totally unique and no one's ever done it in pinball before. But that's just not true because we have uh, Gold Wings has a loop-de-loop that you actually shoot. It's small, far away from your eyes, and they did not design the ramp particularly well. So you can't really see the ball go around it. But it's there. Mm -hmm. It's been done. And of course, people have done ramp spinners and they've done uh, horizontal spinners. But my spinner is going to be mounted on a solenoid post. So picture like a lot of posts in games that will just disappear and like go flush with the playfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, my spinner is going to sit too high for the ball to interact with until the signpost is lit and then it will pull down and therefore be engageable. So I, to my knowledge, and I really hope I'm not wrong about this, no one has ever put a spinner on a solenoid before. No one's ever had a moving spinner so I'm really excited for that. It's not there yet because I'm
0: waiting for parts from Marco. You got to trademark it, Ryan, and then sue everybody who does it afterwards. Well,
1: no, it's I I've thought about that. I'm like, "All right, I'm going to patent this and then you're not going to have you're not going to get sued if you use it. You're going to have to hire me."
0: Right, pay you <laughs> some some royalties. How close are you to finishing the game? I'm seeing the cabinet artwork go up. Like, what's your uh ETA on on this thing's done?
1: All right. So, I always tend to overestimate how long it's going to take me to do these things because I'm a hyper-focuser. I I would say I'm where I thought I would be after, like, two and a half years, and it's only been one year. I've been working on this game for a single year. I'm not going to be one of those people who's like, all right, Whitewood's done, game's done. Like, there's going to be art. There's going to be, like, there's a lot more work to be done. Uh, Everything needs to be finalized. We need to do a whole CAD drawing. A whole new playfield has to get cut. Like, the whole thing needs to be rebuilt. And then I'll probably have to do it again. Uh, You know, because as soon as you start moving things, uh, it's not final and you can't really start your art or at least it's rude to start your art and then change the canvas on your artist. That's not nice.
0: Don't tell that to John Papaduke. He (laughs) he starts with the art.
1: (laughs) Oh, man, I can only imagine what that's like. The whitewood is getting there. The white wood, I'd say, is around, you know, 80 percent done. All the shots are getting dialed in and I'm starting to add toys. So once you're starting to add toys, you're like your base, your base is there. Um, my code is a lot further along than I thought it would be because I started my code well before I started actually building it So my code is around 75% feature complete Like I have most of my stuff already in there and including like
0: a bunch of the graphics It's really cool code and I was watching some of the animations How are you coding this and where are you pulling your animations from?
1: Um, so the whole, most of the game is coded in the, um, mission pinball framework and the config files that they have invented there so mission pinball runs on python but but you don't have to know python to program it they have their own config file their own uh, yaml language or whatever and once you get a little familiar with it it's got most of the like underlying stuff for pinball specifically already done so you don't have to program what an extra ball is and how it works they have that done in the engine for you so you just have to say all right extra ball this is the conditions this is how many times you can get it like, a lot of the underlying work is already done for you, so it's very... The whole point of it was to be approachable, right. um, and they, they did a really good job. You can get a game flipping with Mission Pinball in, like, a day. Wow. Um, awesome. It, it, I mean, to get a full game fleshed out with rules, it's going to take you months, but right. you can get it working easy. Uh, the animations are almost actually they are they are entirely first party they're all made by Sega they're all in official games I have not used any fan art that I do not have permission to do so um, because I don't think that's fair to the artists but I'm lucky in that I'm doing a video game title so a lot of the assets and uh, the animations are already done for me I just need to convert them to like formats that I that I want and for anything that is more complicated that doesn't already exist I'm using uh, Adobe After Effects
0: Okay. It's super cool. I have to say, Ryan, when I'm watching these animations, it just brings back such a nostalgic feeling to watching old school. like Is it 16-bit Sonic you're using or 8-bit? It
1: is 16. Although mostly I'm using a lot of Sonic Mania sprites, which are upscaled
0: 16-bit. Looks amazing. I mean, it really is. And it's perfect for the size of a pinball screen. You know, Sonic, the, the world's fastest blue hedgehog moving from left to right with super speed. So Ryan, let me ask you a question. When this thing is Done. Where does it go? Does it You tour it around at the different shows. It lives in your house permanently. Would you ever make another one for a diehard fan? I know you probably can't say that legally, but would you?
1: So, yeah, it lives in my collection permanently because I did this project because I wanted this game and it didn't exist. Uh, I'm a diehard Sarnik fan. I have been since I was a little kid. I wanted a Sonic pinball machine. It didn't exist. So this is my way to get one. Um, I'm going to be yeah touring it to any show I can because I want to share it with everybody. I want everyone to see what it is. And it's at this point kind of become my uh, my physical resume. A lot of that's been talked about in the past. you want to you want to get people interested? Show them what you can do. So
0: would you like to design pinball for a manufacturer one day? I would love to. OK, uh, I, 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 I want to try doing it as part of a
1: team. I think it would be incredible. Um, Because I love having full creative control and doing whatever I want, but I would also love to have like an expert coder instead of just me who's a dabbler. Like, what could my games be like if I had experts on a team on my side instead of just doing everything myself?
0: Well, Ryan, I got to tell you this one year in and you're this far along. It's incredible because we've seen some of the world's most famous designers from yesteryears take five, seven, eight years and they can't get this far. So this is incredible.
1: Well, we should probably not tell them that I already have my next game designed, huh?
0: We, we won't. Now, let me ask you a question because in the world of homebrew, there are manufacturers out there, American Pinball comes to mind, Deep Root comes to mind, who have said, bring us your homebrew game and we will explore bringing this game to market. Have you ever thought about showing this to a company like American Pinball and saying, hey guys, let's go get the license. The rest is done.
1: So I've actually been uh, subtly poking American Pinball on that for a while. uh, Their marketing guy, Mike, is a friend of mine and I like to poke him on Facebook and every time someone says, American Pinball, grab this guy, I just tag him as a joke. I actually didn't know that American had any kind of program for homebrew. I'm familiar with the more recent Deep Root post. I have opinions on that, but not anything really strong. I think it's very interesting what Deep Root has proposed with their um, homebrew program.
0: Let's talk about what AP's response has been, and then let's talk about the Deep Root model because I am curious to see what your thoughts are on Deep Root's model. But what has AP said to you as you poke them?
1: Um, they haven't said a lot about Sonic specifically. Uh, they, I feel like they really kind of can't unless they were going to commit to something. Um, they, they have been interested in working with me on a different project um, that I that I am trying to work on for them. It has to do with Hot Wheels, but uh, nothing about Sonic so far. Other than we'll see, we'll see whose eyes we can get on it. Um, so I'm still in, you know, get everyone's eyes on the project mode and then someone will have to notice me.
0: I Look, I'm just going to say it for people who listen to this show that I, I think Sonic is a great theme for pinball. AP, listen to me, and I know you listen to the show. Grab this. It's better than Oktoberfest. It's better than Houdini. And I think you could easily find at least 500 buyers, if not more, to buy Sonic the Hedgehog pinball.
1: Well, if you want to market to them. Maybe don't say it's better than their existing games.
0: <laughs> no, but they, all I do is rag on Oktoberfest. If I stopped ragging on Oktoberfest, people would be like, who kidnapped Canada?" Let's talk about yeah. Deep Root because they're talking about how they also want to help the homebrew community get their games to market. Let me read you the steps, Ryan, that they are saying is how they can bring homebrew to market, okay? So I want to get your thoughts on each of these, okay? So step one, Sure. if you have a completed whitewood over your homebrew game and a minimum of 25 buyers willing to commit to purchasing, you can apply for the reserve program. What do you think about that?
1: Um, I think having a minimum of 25 buyers willing to commit is a, I think that's an important step. I don't think it really belongs in step one. Uh, step one should be if you have a mostly completed whitewood, because a whitewood is never done by definition, and and at least a few people interested, then the, like they're saying they'll consider it. Like 25 buyers should be part of step
0: two or step three of whether or not they decide to make it. And also, like, how would you show that to them? Like, I've got 25 deposits. If those go away, they could go away. So what are are you going to do?
1: Collect letters of recommendation? I would buy this. Do they want me to screenshot all the people on Facebook that keep saying, shut up and take my money? Because I have a lot of those. Right. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, they do say complete at Whitewood, so that that should probably just be step one. Like, make a game first. So step yeah, two, make a game. submit a pitch deck to us which must feature, at a minimum, images, videos, narratives, proposed rule sets, sound and graphics highlighting the homebrew concept, and game design, and be in substantially complete form. We will work with you to assess development difficulty and cost. That's a lot of step two there. What do you think of that?
1: I like it actually. Like, cause again, there's a lot of homebrew projects out there that are like not very far along. They like, they have people working on them in their spare time, but it's not their job. And some alum people that don't have the luxury of a lot of time. So what they're saying is you need to be serious. Like you need to be far enough along that you have something to pitch. You can't just come to them and say, hey, wouldn't a Sonic pin be cool? Like you have to have ideas, you have to be able to show that you can execute those ideas. I think it's perfectly reasonable to uh, have all those requirements and say like you need to be able to work with us, you need to be right. capable. Um, the last bit is a little confusing. We'll be able to assess development difficulty and cost. Does that mean they're going to charge me? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused by that, and I would like to see that sentence a little more. Uh, fleshed out
0: you know as I read these steps part of me when I saw the deep root PowerPoint of all the titles they're thinking of making I'm like man they should have put themselves through their own requirements because I'm not (laughs) sure some of those would get 25 buyers immediately lined up just on theme alone but I digress so step three if we approve the homebrew project we will announce the run of the reserve homebrew game including the purchase price time to delivery and how many units are available? Now, this is where it gets interesting. They start to get into some of the pricing. Purchasers will commit with a 5% refundable deposit. In order to be successful, deposits must total at least 60% of the reserve run. If the run maxes out, then the run will be increased. If the run fails to meet the threshold, then all deposits will be refunded and the project will be shelved. All right, I'm somewhat confused. I just read a lot of stuff. So they're basically saying you have to get enough money in deposit form, which must equal 60% of the cost of the game. Is that what they're saying? So
1: right here is we're, we're seeing the actual application of that thing we were questioning in step one. They're like, you need to have people actually put up with a little bit of money to prove that they buy this game. I think the deposit is ridiculous ridiculously reasonable, five percent refundable. That's the smallest deposit I've ever heard of any kind of project like this. You got people like a lot of other manufacturers w- will be like, we need fifty percent payment ahead of time and before we even start building it, and that's how you have people running it like ending up paying money and not getting their games.
0: Oh, the so the sixty percent is the number of people who yeah. have committed.
1: Yeah. So the sixty percent would mean, so if they set the reserve, meaning the minimum number of games they're willing to make, they're saying they need names with 5% deposits for 60% of that number. So if they're going to make 100 games minimum, they need 60 pre-orders with a 5% deposit or the whole thing's getting shut down. But
0: here's what makes no sense, right? They're not even going by this with Raza, which are non-refundable deposits. If all those are refundable, everyone can just bail once the project is going. Well, it seems like they decide when it's refundable. Like they ah, say, okay. it sounds
1: like they're saying if the it's kind of like a Kickstarter model, if they don't make the numbers they need to make the game, they're just going to give everyone their money back. They're gotcha, not going to start gotcha. making that it. That makes sense. So, now. so it seems it seems like a protection against accidentally creating right. a project that bombs so no one gets their game.
0: So let's say hypothetically, let's just say hypothetically, we've got a hundred Sonics we want to make we need 60% we need 60 people to do a 5% refundable deposit let's just say hypothetically Ryan Sonics 10 grand I'm just trying to make it easy to figure these numbers out sure 5% of 10 grand is what 500 bucks yep times 60 is what $30,000 uh,
1: yeah so that would be enough to make three games that doesn't feel like enough well again that's their bare minimum
0: right but but they'll start going into production at that point
1: that is interesting. I, I don't know. Doesn't like, would, that seem really we, low? It it does seem a bit low, but we, we we don't even know that the reserves will be that high. Their reserves might be like 25 games, like they said before.
0: Here's what's crazy. If you bring that 60 buyers down, it brings the money even down. And, and we're talking a $10,000 game. If we lower that, you start to see it like, I don't know how this is even enough money. OK, let's go to step four because this is the other part that's really interesting when you think about bomb and profit, right? And making it worthwhile for people to spend the time and effort. As the homebrew designer, you will receive royalties in the form of a percentage of the sales price of each. The reserve homebrew game sold between 10 and 20% of the sales price of the game. Now, is that enough of an incentive, 10 to 20%? And then is there enough money for deep Brew to actually make this feasible on their end?
1: So I got a couple opinions about those numbers. Um, number one, we need you need more details there. Are you talking ten ten to twenty percent of the profit of that game? That's completely unreasonable. Are you talking ten to twenty percent of the sales price, as they say? Like a game costs ten thousand dollars, so I'm making a thousand to two thousand dollars per game sold. That's excellent. It says sales price of each. Yeah, it says that, but it seems a little too good to be true. Uh, and I, so I would want to read the fine print there, but. I like the idea that they're that they're going to like you're going to get paid for your work. Like they're not just going to take all the money and run with it. Um, You're you're the designer. You're the one who made the game and you should indeed profit from it. I do want to know how they're going to deal with licensing, though, because almost every homebrew I I, I, so few homebrews have original uh, non-licensed themes. So many people who are making homebrew are like, I want this theme to exist and it doesn't. So I'm doing it.
0: Absolutely. Why wouldn't if you're going to if you're going to be able to play without having to ask permission, why wouldn't you just go make the game that you really want?
1: Yeah, exactly. So if I have to ask permission and I have to get and we have to get the game licensed and that that costs money, I could
0: see them saying the price of the license is coming out of your 20 percent. And that's what American Pinball's homebrew model was thinking back. But I think their model was more along the lines of for it was I think it was $250,000 is the price by which we'll help you get your game to market with the licensing like they were sort of aiming higher because it's going to take more money than 30 grand to start getting a, a, a pinball game off the ground. You're right. Because if you if you sell Sonic, let's just do the math here. So let's say we sell 100 at 10,000 each. Not out of the realm of possibility your game is packed with toys. That's a million bucks, right? Now remove the licensing fee with Sega, factor in the bomb, factor in all the stuff, there might still be a few hundred thousand dollars for you, Ryan, at the end of this journey, if AP could make that. And I think that's what they're going for is, is it worth it to go pay for this license and pay per game made and see what the bomb is? It's it's big numbers, but there's big numbers to make if you can sell the game. Yeah. The question becomes this, because I think what Deep Root is saying here, and and this is not just Deep Root, but anyone who's going to make a limited run, is it even feasible only to make 25 and ever make any money unless you're charging a ton? Because to order only 25 parts makes everything super expensive to do.
1: And that's that's the reason that Stern has been able to keep their prices down up until recently is they've been buying in bulk, whereas you have Spooky and they have to put out... Like there, I think Total Nuclear Annihilation cost almost $6,000 when it came out. And like, it's an excellent game and I love mine and it's never get it. It's never going anywhere. But the BOM is not very impressive. Like it's a very like it's a street level game. It doesn't have a lot going on as far as toys. And I feel like if Stern made that game, they could have made it for a lot cheaper.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, Ryan, let me ask you a question. So I could snap my fingers and place you at any pinball company. Who would you want to work for?
1: Uh, who would I want to work for? So based on fit, I would probably, my first choices would be spooky or American. Um, I like the people I like, um, I like what they're doing. And, uh, I think I could bring a lot to those tables for, you know, obviously for stability, you got stern, they're never going anywhere. Um, but I don't know if my, What I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to bring to the table would work with them. I would I would still try it. I'd be I would be curious to see because I don't know their inside process. Um, I would I feel like it would be like working for a large company versus a small one. And I recently did that in my professional career where I moved from a huge company to a much smaller one and my quality of life has dramatically increased.
0: American Pinball could use another designer. I mean, it's, it's just Joe Balser and it would be nice to have someone new with some fresh ideas in the mix there. Just as a guy who loves toys and designing things, I'm really curious why you didn't say Jersey Jack Pinball as a designer.
1: That's a really good question. I think you got me there. I think Jersey Jack would be awesome cuz you're right they're they're huge on toys they love like they don't skimp on anything like that my other problem going into this is i'm also a competitive pinball player which at some point is uh, an advantage but it's also a disadvantage in others like i i am the new hampshire state champion two times i'm the new england pinball league two time champion right now but i still am able to maintain the amazement that a basic toy can bring regardless of the score and victories it can bring me so yeah i guess you're right jersey jack would be an excellent fit um, I don't really think of them because um, in, in competitive space, I just can't wrap my head around their scoring. Um, so I guess if I were to work on a Jersey Jack game, I would have to insist that their scoring makes sense to me before I would put my name on it. But
0: Well, you know, I look at Jersey Jack as the company that gives their designers the highest bomb, and the designers probably hear no, fewer amount of times. I think at Stern, the designers are held back a little bit by the bomb, and, and Stern's got their approach, and I am not one to tell them it doesn't work because it does work, and they keep the company profitable and going. I think American Pinball definitely needs somebody new. I, I think they need new talent. I think they need new ideas. I think they need creative leadership, and your ability to take this Sonic theme and create this in one year's time. If I'm American Pinball, and I'm um, it's Mike, right, the new What is he, the chief marketing officer now? I think so. Mike, come on. And this is my thing with AP. It's like there are amazing games in the homebrew space. We got Sonic. You've got The Nightmare Before Christmas. When are these companies going to wake up and realize some of the greatest games that they could bring to market are sitting right in front of their faces? Do you feel that way, Ryan?
1: They're already done. They're done. Like It's not even like you're just grabbing a license and running with it. Right. The whole thing's done, because someone with passion already did it. Like, And imagine what they could do if it was not just something they did in their garage. Imagine what these people who are creating entire games on their own time, on their own bill, and with nothing but their own expertise. Imagine what we could do if you gave one of us, or all of us, a team, a budget, and and the time to do it. Like, I made Sonic in my own time, on my own money. What could I have done if I had experts and... All the time in the world to do it.
0: What do you feel like when you see a story like J Pop and years and years and years and millions of dollars? Does it does it frustrate you as as in, in the homebrew community as you watch this guy continue to spend money and just can't get stuff to market? And you guys are doing it like in your garages with no team, no millions. What do you feel about that? Don't understand
1: it. Like I I and i'm i'm actually- I'm more familiar with this phenomena in a lot of video game space because um before before I was into pinball I was a big video game player and you have games like um Star Citizen that have taken in hundreds of millions of dollars and ten years of development and they only have like a clunky beta to show for it, and I just don't get it like I, I can't wrap my head around what must be going on behind those closed doors to create such a situation. Like, even if you're putting in like, s- say you're lazy, right? Cause like, and then that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying like, say you're a human and like, you just don't have the drive that somebody else might have. Like, you're still going to get your thing out the door. You're still going to get it done eventually. Cause it's your job. Right. But like, there, I mean, there's any number of situations like, I can't speak to their situation, but I just don't, I can't come up with a hypothetical scenario where you can't
0: get a game out the door. Right. And it's one thing when your ambitions might be so lofty, and we see this in the gaming world sometimes, right? You build these open worlds, and then it's just like they can't get it to work right, and that's where they stall, like 90% done. But when I look at some of these pinball games that have taken so many years, I don't even see the lofty ambition in the games, well, I think that's kind of what happens when you aim too high.
1: Like you end up, so, so at the very beginning, you have all these, like, like you said, lofty ambitions and you have all this stuff to do. And then you start developing it. And you, next thing you know, you spent a year and you only have 20% of it done. And so then you have to scale back your vision. So now, like, say you scale it back and now you have 40% done. You take another year and now you're only 50% done. So you need to scale it back again. So I feel like what ends up happening. Is you end up scaling it back and the original vision was so big that it needed all those parts to be worth to it big to make sense. Right. And you by the time you're done, you've cut out so
0: much that the, it doesn't make sense anymore. And then the expectations every year as the community waits get higher and higher. Higher and
1: higher. Um, and the patience of everybody gets lower and lower. So my approach is the opposite. I say aim to make something simple. Aim to make something simple that works and then once you have your foundation and you're like all right if i really needed to and this this is actually what i did in my development if i needed to i could have this game playable and showable in six months because i want to bring it to pentastic new england that's what i did i started the game and i said all right i have six months to make something flippable and i know it sounds crazy but i think i can do it so i've set my goals really low just get a game make it flip. Add a few modes, make it make sense, you know, get people excited for what it'll eventually become and then go from there. And so as I'm doing this, I have my solid base and then I keep having ideas. And now because I have like modest goals that I can really achieve at any time because they're so modest, I can just start stacking on features and stacking on features and like it and if any of them don't work, they don't detract from the entirety of the project because the project would have worked in bare bones.
0: Yeah, and and I always say this: creatives need deadlines. And I'm I'm sort of of the yes, creative mindset in my industry, and I do get lazy at times. I lose momentum, but when I know there's a deadline, you best believe it, I'm gonna have that ready for that client meeting, whenever it is. And I think that's the problem too: is when these companies and these these people, and I and I always say this: it's the bigger egos that fly by the deadlines. And you know, Pat Lawler had a year to make Dialed In, he took three. John Papaduke had how many years to make these games? He's taken seven. So I think it's great that in six months, you set a deadline, you achieved your goal, and you built it to meet that deadline, which is so important in any creative project, right? Mm-hmm. Like,
1: and what's the problem with under-promising and over-performing?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. No one's ever going to be mad if your game comes in early. <laughs>
1: yeah. Early or with more features or with more toys than planned. Like, hey, I finished early. Uh, all right. I'm going to make a signpost or I I finished early. The, the loop to loop's going to be metal.
0: I'm still shocked that no one's used this marketing tactic and I'm going to give it to everybody right now. I would totally wheel out a game at a show that had half of what was actually going to be in it. I would sandbag it just so when it came out, <laughs> I'd be like, you really thought this was going to be Raza? Come on. It's this. If I were Davil over at American Pinball, here's what I would do. Because the other part is getting the license. And I work in marketing and I deal with marketing meetings in which we're talking about getting the license. And ultimately, someone's got to pitch this to Sega, right? And the best person to talk to Sega about this and show them this game is you. Because you have the passion, you love this franchise, and they are going to see that. And I think part of the problem with some of these companies is the people at the top. I, I just, I, I can't imagine them in a meeting with some of these licensor holders or license holders and you could see it like they're not in love with these themes or these franchises. They, they kind of sell them on pinball, but man, you gotta sell them on, I'm gonna do your property justice and I'm gonna make the Sonic the Hedgehog game that the world is gonna love. And I think you'd be perfect for doing that. So I hope they give you that opportunity, Ryan.
1: That would be nice, and um, Sega has previously been very liberal with their licensing, especially on Sonic, um, and they've also been very supportive of fan projects, so that was one of the other reasons that I've never been afraid to put out everything I'm doing and put out what I'm there. They're not Nintendo, who is famous for DMCAing anybody who uses any of their characters in any kind of project. Sega often, on their official social media accounts, jokes yeah. and says, all right, BRB, DMCA time, right. just kidding. Right. Keep doing what you're doing. It's awesome. Right. So I, I think it would be
0: p- very possible to get them to license it. So American Pinball, I hope you're listening. I know they listen to this show. Guys, Josh, Joe, Daval. Guys, wake up. We got a guy right here. Game is done. I tell you right now, if you guys release Valkyrie or Sherlock Holmes in front of Sonic the Hedgehog, I will find you and I will hurt you guys. Ryan, closing out the hour, I want to ask you one question. And this is like as you talk about playing playing these machines is often what people need to do to vote for them in the twippies now is sonic up for a twippy this year i hope so um i think i got enough support to get on the list now i will say i think this might be a good year for you to take it i don't know what you're up against i I haven't seen a ton of Homebrew new titles. Jack Dangerous was last year. Airplane was last year. Nightmare Before Christmas was a few years ago. So I think you uh, have a really good chance. You have a really good <laughs> chance here. So ladies and gentlemen, I hope so. if you see Sonic the Hedgehog on Homebrew and you're looking for something to fill in in that category, show Ryan some love. And let's get Ryan at one of these manufacturers making some games because I think if you check out this machine, Ryan, where's the best place for someone to check out your Sonic game?
1: So I have a pin side thread under the homebrew section. Um, it's just Sonic the Hedgehog Spinball. It should be really easy to find. I've I did an expo video for uh, the virtual pinball expo in uh, a couple months ago, maybe a month ago, and uh, it is on the very first post. It's right there. That's a great place to like catch up to where the project is at. And then every time I do something or anytime I build something or code something, it all goes up on that thread. So you can see cutting edge, and I'm answering questions, taking suggestions. I've actually got a lot of great input there. So uh, the, probably the best place to, to follow the project would be the pin side thread.
0: Great. Ryan, can I borrow your Pinside login and password every once in a while? <laughs> Don't know why you'd want it. I, I won't cause any problems, I promise. <laughs> no, Ryan, this has been great. I really appreciate it. And I think for all of you out there, this is an amazing thing. You know, this guy has a dream theme. He doesn't doesn't like take no for an answer that it doesn't exist in the universe. He goes and creates it in his own house, in his own garage, with his own money. This is how pinball should be developed. And Ryan, you are much like Keith Elwin, who did it on his own. Scott Denisi, who did it on his own. And I hope that a year from now, we are talking about the next person who showed they could do it on their own, landed a job at a manufacturer, because I think that is the greatest resume for anyone who wants to get into pinball. So Ryan, congratulations on Sonic Pinball. I can't wait to play it one of these days.
1: Oh, I can't wait until you guys can play it. Seriously, that's the biggest thing I'm missing is play testing. <laughs> well,
0: Ryan, thank you so much. Happy holidays. And we will hopefully see you at a show in 2021. Oh, I hope so. Uh,
1: but thank you so much for uh, the opportunity and thank you for having me on.
0: Awesome.